Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. We have allowed ourselves to become so disconnected and ignorant about something that is as intimate as the food that we eat. Be prepared to grow your own for victory. God said I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink foamed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. Hello and welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. I'm your host, Harold Thornbro, and I'm glad you're with me again today. And hey, I think we got a fun one today. I, I like these kind of episodes. This is a Q&A episode where I'm going to answer some questions uh, from the audience. And uh, why I like these kind of shows is mostly because I'm not just throwing a topic out there and hoping it appeals to you. I know these topics appeal to some of you at least because you asked the questions so i have fun with episodes like this and i hope you'll enjoy it as well so uh i think it's going to be a little bit long so let's just jump right into it today's first question comes from ellie ellie asks i really want to start raising pigs only one or two at a time i just need some advice on what i need to get started some tips on raising them to be healthy and maybe some troubleshooting on any obstacles I might find in my way. Also, what breed to look for being a first-timer and where to get them. So, really good question, and uh, I'm going to try to answer that and just kind of go through a few things, uh, maybe even discuss a few things maybe she's not even asking about raising uh, pigs on the homestead. Uh, first of all, I don't have pigs right now. I grew up uh, with pigs. My dad always had pigs. And a matter of fact, I, I even gave him a call just to make sure I was right about a few things that I was questioning. I was thinking, well, maybe I don't hardly remember about that. So I'm going to call my dad and ask him. And he's he's had pigs for years. So uh, yeah, I got some professional advice on some of these things. And um, so let's just uh, talk about pigs because I think they are a great homesteading animal. And uh, of course, everybody likes bacon, right? Everything is better with bacon on it. So let's talk about the infrastructure first. I think before you get pigs, you have to think about your infrastructure. You have to think about how much space it's going to take. Uh, actually, pigs require less space than most large livestock. Most of the literature out there recommends a minimum of 20 square feet per pig. Now, you can do that, but remember that the less room you make available for your pigs, it will intensify the smell and the cleanup duties. And also, I think a pig raised on a pasture is going to be healthier and of course it's going to have a better muscle tone also because it's going to get more exercise on the flip side of that and i remember this well we had a couple acres for a couple pigs and uh, i think when you give them too much room they kind of take on some feral tendencies and I, there's going to be some people that would probably disagree with me on that but 
ours did. But we didn't spend a lot of time with them either. I and mean, we pretty much fed them and got away from them. We didn't we didn't bug them a lot. Um, they they were skittish and harder to work with in some ways, especially when it was time to butcher and getting a hold of them and stuff. I mean, you just you, know, you could feed them and they'd come up, but they wouldn't spend any time around you. And and honestly, they they can get a little meaner uh, when when in those situations as well too. So personally i'd be careful about giving them too much space just because of that i don't think that's going to be an issue with most people most people don't want to fence off a couple acre plot for a couple pigs but i do think they need some pasture Uh, they're going to do a lot better for you and um but they don't have to have a lot of space um fencing (laughs) pigs are big pushy animals and they require some heavy duty fencing now, you can buy those 16-foot hog panels. Now, the difference between the cattle panels and the hog panels, you've probably noticed if you've ever been to like a uh, one of the hardware stores, uh, uh, like a TSC or a Rural King or something like that, you'll see they have those 16-foot uh, cattle panels out there, and they'll also have the hog panels. And the difference is on the hog panels, the uh, the squares are smaller the closer you get to the bottom. Uh, and, and, you know, that way they don't really get their nose through it and dig and root. Uh, the cow panels, uh, cattle panels have the bigger squares uh, in the fencing. And uh, also that makes them a little heavier duty too because you obviously got more uh, strands of wire in the hog panels. makes them a little, little tougher. And you can use those, but remember, they're only as strong as the posts you attach them to. So uh, you want to make sure you got some good posts and uh, you got them secured really well. You can use um, electric uh, fencing, electric wire, it's a common way to keep pigs in, but now pigs have to be trained to fear that wire. And because a pig's natural tendency is not to back up, it's to go forward. So if you don't train them to the wire and they go put their nose into it, which is about the height of the wire you want, you want the, the wire to be nose high. Uh, but some pigs will actually run through the wire if it shocks them rather than back up if you don't train them to it. So you want to you wanna train them to the wire. Also, you got to make sure it's hot. Because if they ever get up against it and it doesn't shock them, they very well may go right through it uh, the next time, even if it is hot, just because, you know, they're like that. They're, they get something in their mind and they'll, they'll run with it. So, again, I like to use the cattle panels. We, we always did, or we would build up some really heavy-duty wood, wood fencing when I was a kid uh, uh, to hold our uh, pigs in, and it worked real well also. Um, you have to think about housing. Uh, barn stall that the pigs can kind of go in and out of is probably ideal. But outdoor pig hutches are great too. Uh, hutches don't have to be anything fancy. They can just be little lean-tos. or You've probably seen them. They're like a teepee-style hut, uh, just a little lean-to. Or um, I've seen people, well, I mean, I've seen people uh, cut a hole out of an end of an IBC tote and turn it on its side and, for a door and, and uh, make that into a hog house before. I mean, you uh, you don't have to get fancy. You can make something decent. I would keep them movable, though. You never know when you're going to want to move a pay, a, your pigs to another paddock or something like that. So you might want to keep them uh, to where you can uh, move them, make them portable. Some things that the hutches have to have. Uh, they have to be a dry place for the pigs to sleep. They have to provide shade for your pigs on sunny days because pigs can get sunburned. They should have some ventilation. Now there's a big difference between draft and and ventilation. You know, should if you're going to keep them in colder weather, which I don't really recommend for first timers, uh, just raising some feeder pigs, just raise them for a few months through the the warmer months, and you don't have to worry about uh, cold weather that much. So just um, 
So you really don't have to worry about drafts and things like that if you're raising them like that. But you do, it should have some ventilation, some place for the air to escape, get some fresh air through there. And it keeps the moisture out uh, because the straw will just get wet that they're bedding in and start molding if you don't have some decent uh, ventilation in there. One of the greatest things about pigs is really how clean they, they keep their house. Uh, they won't use the bathroom where they sleep. So cleaning hutches and stalls is relatively easy. You just have to swap out or add some bedding material now and then. And uh, you have to keep up on that, but they'll keep it pretty clean. They'll arrange it the way they want it, and uh, and they will. They'll build little beds in there and things like that. It's pretty pretty neat how, they, how they'll do it. Um, but, yeah, it's not hard. You don't need anything fancy. Uh, just uh, just some place for them to, to stay. Uh, another thing you'll have to think about, especially if you're on a smaller homestead where you don't have any large barns or anything, you're going to need a place to store your hay, your straw, and your feed. It's got to be dry. With pigs, you're going to have to keep a lot of hay, straw, and feed around. And you do need a place that's dry to store it all. It's not a problem for most people. But like I said, if you're limited on space and outbuildings, uh, it's something you're going to have to consider. So you might have to get a shed or something like that to stack stuff like that in. You could tarp it. I don't recommend it. It's going to be open out there for varmints and things like that. Uh, it needs to be put up. It really does. So it's just something you have to consider, and you have to keep that stuff on hand. Also with pigs, you have to consider constant supply of clean water. They have to have clean water, and lots of it. So there's a couple ways you can go about this. You can use troughs, but it's probably not the best way unless you're able to clean them and fill them very regularly. Uh, Automatic waterers are probably the best way to go these days. There are several different designs out there. Uh, just pick one that works well for your infrastructure. There's some that just hang on fences. There's some that are kind of a trough style that have a hose hooked to them where they just automatically, you know, they'll kind of flush out and uh, fill up. There's some different styles. You have to just look around for the one that you think would work best for you. Um, feeding pigs. Uh, one of the big bonuses of raising pigs on your homestead is that you get to decide on what you feed your pig in order to have the healthiest meat available. And... Um, you know, as homesteaders, most of us are trying to escape the mass-produced, unhealthy meat available in most grocery stores and restaurants. But listen, if you feed your pigs the same way they do, it's going to have a lot of the same problems. I mean, there's going to be little advantages to raising your hogs still on your homestead, but we're trying to escape that. Um, so you want to feed your hogs right. Let's talk about feeding systems first. Uh, you need to decide how you're going to feed your pigs. This, again, can be as simple as a trough. Or it can be as complicated as bulk automatic feeders. Uh, this depends on how much time you have to do the feeding and how much money you want to spend, honestly. For feeding, I think a trough's fine. You're going to be able to go out there once or twice a day and do the feeding. Um, a trough's going to work for you. What to feed pigs? You can feed your pigs scrap fruits and vegetables from your garden or from your orchard. They're going to love that. It's going to be great for them. Some people like to, if they have cows, they'll, they'll make cheeses and yogurts and things like that and feed their pigs. Works great for them. They'll love it. But they also need more than that. They need a high-protein diet if you want good meat. Um, and the problem you're going to run into here is trying to find a good pig feed that's not medicated. Most of it's medicated these days. So you're going to want to call around to some feed stores and try to find the non-medicated feed if that's something you want, which is something I would want. Now, I'll admit, uh, when 
when we were raised, when I was around pigs, when I was a kid, we fed them whatever, the cheapest stuff we could get. Because this wasn't a big focus of, of my dad. He, he wasn't that concerned about it. But I'm more concerned about those things. So I would try to find an, you know, a, a feed mix that's not medicated. However, buying organic feed is expensive. It's a lot more. It costs a lot more than regular feed. So if you can just find a mix that's not medicated, it's pretty good. Now, you can call around to feed stores and have them mix up, uh, do a, um, have your own mix done up. And uh, you can get around on the uh, Internet and find some different uh, custom mixes that are really good for, for you know, organic, uh, raising your pigs organically. But I think the biggest thing is to find the non-medicated feed. Another big dilemma, kind of, or something you're going to have to put some consideration in, especially if you've never raised pigs before, is how much to feed your pigs. For feeder pigs, and I'm not talking about any kind of lactating sows or, or pigs that's going to be kept through the winter and grown larger, but for pigs that you're going to raise for five and a half to six and a half months, which is, we'll talk about that in a minute, a good rule of thumb is to feed about a pound of food each day for each month of age, up to a maximum of six pounds per day. All feed should be cleared up within 20 to 30 minutes when your pigs are eating. If it's not, then you should reduce the amount, then increase it gradually as their appetite increases. Now, why you'd want to do this is it's going to maintain a good meat to fat ratio on your pigs, and it's going to save you a lot of money because those pigs will eat more. They'll eat till they're full and then they will walk away and they're going to get lazy and they're not going to, they're not even going to eat at all because they're going to start like thinking, well, there's always food there. You don't want to just leave food out there. You don't want to leave more than what they can eat in about 30 minutes because they're going to start thinking there's always food there and they're never going to want to uh, be in a hurry to eat. They're not going to be concerned with eating all of it, which will actually make them gain weight slower, which is another reason you might want to raise at least two pigs at a time because they will actually compete with each other for the food, which will make them eat better. When there's one, they just don't, they don't want to eat as much because they're not worried about not having food. You want to make them fight for that a little bit, work for it a little bit, eat everything that they've got, and they'll actually gain weight quicker. When the pigs are really small, you might want to even split that feed amount into two feedings a day to cut back on the waste because they're going to slop a lot of it out and waste a little bit of it here and there. Feeding them smaller amounts at a time will you know, prevent some of that. So that might be something you want to do. But I think that's a good way to get the maximum amount of meat for your feed for the feed you're giving them. And that's important. I mean, it, it, you're in this to save money, to have good meat, lots of reasons. So you don't want to give them more feed than you need to. Let's talk about a good size to butcher a pig. This is something that a lot of people struggle with. They don't know exactly, okay, how, how big do I let this thing get? Because they can get really big. But an ideally raised pig is going to be around 220 to 250 pounds. That's going to give you the best meat for the money. Any larger... And there's going to be a lot more fat, and the feed-to-meat ratio starts to go down, and um, you're just going to spend a lot more money on them. That's needless. Now, to raise a your average weaned feeder pigs to about this size, it's going to take about five and a half to six and a half months. Uh, some of the breeds are going to vary a little bit on that weight. Some of them maybe 200, some of them a little bit more uh, than 250. But around 220 to 250 is going to be an ideal weight. And a pig this size is going to yield you about around 140 pounds of meat product. A little bit less on the low end, a little bit more on the high end, but about 140 
pounds of, of what would be considered retail meat products. Now, there's other things you can get out of them that most people wouldn't use, and you'll have to make that decision for yourself. But for what you would normally see in a grocery store, pork chops, hams, bacon, you know, all the cuts that are normal cuts, you're going to get about 140 pounds of meat product, counting the, the lard as well. Um, now, you can estimate the weight of a pig without a scale. What you do is you measure the pig from the base of the ear to the base of the tail. And then you get the length, you get the total length of the pig that way. Then you measure the girth around the pig just behind the front legs, kind of around their heart. And what you do is you multiply the girth by the length, and then you, def then you divide that number by 400. And this will give you a real accurate weight of your pig, pretty accurate, uh, within just a few pounds. So you're going to know what your pig weighs and when, it, when it's time to take it. If you can get a pig to stand still enough to do this, that is. Now, something else you asked me, Ellie, is that uh, you want to know what breeds to choose. And I'm just going to tell you, we raised some different breeds when, uh, when I was around them. And there wasn't a lot of difference in them. There's just not a huge difference in, in taste. There's, there's minor things. Uh, and it's going to depend. There's going to be certain traits in certain pigs that you may desire. But commercial pigs are generally the Duroc, the Hampshire, the Berkshire, Tamworth, Yorkshire. And if you're just buying feeder pigs, you'll probably take whatever is available in your area. And those are going to be your more common ones right there. Uh, we did the Duroc a lot. That's the red ones. Um, they were pretty good. They had a good taste to them. They were a pretty hearty pig. I think they had a little bit more of a temper than some of the others. They're a little bit uh, more active, I think, too. Uh, but they're all good pigs. I mean, just depending on how you raise them. And they're all going to have a little bit different traits. Uh, what you want is a, uh, you know, there's a couple different styles. You got the the shorter, higher arched pigs. You got the longer pigs. Some of them, depending on their, the way they um, look, it's going to determine different amounts of certain cuts of meat that you get. Uh, some you're going to get a longer, uh, some of them you're going to get a, a more bacon out of. Some of them you're going to get larger hams out of. I mean, just depends on the shape of the pig more what you're you're going to get, but. I think you're going to be pretty happy with any of those uh, common breeds. Um, you're also going to have to choose between the gilts and boars. Some people would tell you that gilts are probably going to grow a little slower than the boars, but with boars you're going to have to decide whether or not to castrate them. And uh, Most would recommend that you do castrate your boars, and if you don't want to castrate, and why you would, why you would want to do that, first of all, is because of uh, what's called boar taint, and it can actually taste... It can actually affect the taste of your meat. And some people dispute that. Some people think that's a myth. But there are some people who swear by it. And it may be less about the boar than about the person. Some people are really sensitive to the boar taint. And some people aren't. But if you want to avoid any risk of boar taint, you're going to want to castrate uh, the boars. And, um, and if that's the case and you don't want to do that, you might want to just raise uh, gilts. So that's a decision you'll have to make. Where to get your pigs? For a person who's wanting to raise pigs for their first time, this is something you're going to have to think about. Where do you get them? I mean, it ain't like you can just run down to the local store and buy them. Um, well, what you're going to want to do is get to know some local farmers that are raising pigs. Finding and getting to know some local pig raisers will probably be your best way of purchasing some healthy feeder pigs. As a bonus, you're going to be building a relationship with them that could be helpful down the road when you need some advice or come up against some unexpected problems. Um, so, yeah, I think dealing with local farmers is one of your best ways to do it. But some people want to keep it simple. They don't want to deal with anybody directly like that. 
And in which case I would tell you to search ads. Uh, some communities put out these local like farm papers where they, you know, people sell tractors and all kinds of farm implements and even livestock in them. So if you got some of those kind of papers, uh, local farmers papers in your area, those are a great place to look. And believe it or not, Craigslist. Craigslist.com is a great place to look for pigs for sale. Right before I jumped on this uh, to do this podcast, I thought I'll just check that out. And I jumped on my local area right here and I just punched in pigs on a search. 12. 12 people came up selling feeder pigs. So uh, they were, uh, there's a big variance in prices. They were going anywhere from 50 to to $100. And I've seen pigs as low as 35. I've seen them as much as 150 for feeder pigs. I mean, I've seen them all over the place. I think $50 is a, is a fair price. I think 50, 60, 65 bucks, you know, is probably going to be a good price to pay for them right now. You might be listening to this podcast in the future and the prices have went way up. I don't know. But around here right now, 50 bucks can buy you a feeder pig. And uh, like I said, 12, 12 uh, ads popped up with people selling feeder pigs in my area. Uh, you sent me this uh, question on Facebook and I clicked on your profile and you don't live that far away from me. So if you use Craigslist, uh, I'm sure there are some uh, folks in your area selling feeder pigs. Another way you can get your feeder pigs, your starter pigs, is through livestock sale barns. This is a viable option. Uh, I know when, when I was a kid, we went to the livestock auction and bought pigs a couple times. But I would make it my third choice. And, and the reason I would do that is because many times I think the worst of the litter ends up at the sale barn. I, that's not always the case. Sometimes that's just where farmers go to, to do their dealing. But you're going to be a little bit more careful on what you pick. You're going to have to look close at the pigs. You want to see something that's a little active, maybe a little jumpy, looks healthy, you know, running around, squealing. If one's just sitting there with its eyes half closed, not moving around much, I probably would avoid that pig. So you're going to have to just make a decision on which ones to bid on. And I don't know. I don't know what prices are going for these days at the sale barn. I haven't been in a while. But uh, you can go there. And there's a lot of public uh, livestock auctions out there. We have one right here in my hometown. I Honestly, I've never even been to a sale in that barn. I should. I should just go down there and just sit and watch uh, just to know the environment a little bit better, if nothing else, even if I'm not buying. But, yeah, local farmers, and check out the ads especially on, on Craigslist and uh, livestock sale barns are your are going to be your best options. Some things you should probably consider um, before you get pigs. Pigs can hurt you. Don't ever forget what you're dealing with. Pigs are large. Pigs can bite. So don't ever, ever put yourself in a position where you can't get away quickly if you need to. Don't climb inside their hut with them. <laughs> don't just don't put yourself in any kind of position i don't care how friendly you are with your pig do not put yourself they, they may not even hurt you on purpose they're big a couple you know 250 pounds getting up against you and they're strong muscle you up against a fence could break some bones um and they do bite uh, maybe your pig won't i mean you can develop a a friendship with a pig and and they have a great personality and they can be like a pet but I will never trust a pig. And and I have a story behind that while I'll never trust a pig. We would raise pigs sometimes and we would even um have them inseminated and and you know get some 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 babies and uh we would castrate the male. So I was in a pen. We I was trying to separate them from mama and uh, I got in the pen. I'm trying to get her separating, get her in another pen and I'm trying to separate them and one of them squealed 
and she was on the other side of the pen and she come after me hard. I mean, like in a dead charge. Well, my dad was sitting there and I don't even really want to tell you what he had to do probably to keep me from getting hurt bad, but because it was, it's kind of bad. And there are probably some animal rights activists that wouldn't like it, but it was basically me or her. And, uh, he was sitting there doing some, uh, repairing some fence and he had a hammer in his hand and I'll just leave it at that. He stopped her. He stopped her hard and I got over the fence and I probably wouldn't have got over the fence had he not done that. And he didn't kill her or do any permanent damage to her, but he stopped her. Let's <laughs> just put it that way. So don't put yourself in a position like I did where you have to hurt your pig or you have to, or you could get hurt. So just be careful. They're an animal um, that can hurt you even if they don't intend to. Something else you need to know is pigs root up and tear up ground really badly so if you've got a nice pasture out there just understand that uh, when you raise your pigs on pasture they're going to tear it up pretty good it's how they're designed that snout is a big powerful muscle and it has amazing digging abilities amazing and they will plow out the ground for you so your pasture is going to look pretty bad when a pig's out there rooting around on it it really is they're going to try to get to those roots and choose you know to find something to eat and they're going to just tear that ground to shreds so keep that in mind also, <laughs> this is a strange one, but uh, for a homesteader, but keep in mind the purpose. Here's what I mean by that. You're raising pigs for meat, not for pets. So you have to constantly keep that in mind, believe it or not. Pigs are smart. They can have great personalities. And it's easy to get attached to them. It really is. You don't want to look at them like they're a pet. You don't want to treat them like they're a pet. Because it's going to make it hard when it's time to butcher. And... Maybe, maybe you're the kind of person that it won't affect, but you know, I, I was always careful about getting too attached to animals, you know, cause it's tough. It's tough to butcher an animal and it's tough to eat that animal later when you're attached to it. I find it anyway, but Hey, I'm an old softy, right? Uh, but it's just something you have to keep in mind. If you're the kind of person that would struggle with that, you think you're going to struggle with that. It's going to be tough for you. So just, just be aware. And another thing that you need to keep in mind is that sickness can occur. So you want to be ready for emergencies. Go ahead and have a plan on, on what to do when a pig gets hurt or sick. Are you going to use antibiotics? I mean, do you have the number of a vet on hand with experience with pigs? Um, are you prepared for the possible expenses of that? These are all things you need to consider before you get a pig. So just to be aware, uh, Make good choices before you get the pig. Pay attention to your infrastructure. Uh, pay attention to how you're going to water them and feed them. There's just a lot of things you have to consider before you get pigs and uh, a lot of things that you have to think about as you're raising them. So just keep all that in mind. Ellie, I hope that helps you out and answers your question. Uh, if you have any other uh, questions you want to ask about it, like I said, even if it's something I don't know, I can pass them on to my dad and he'll he'll help me out with that. Um, uh, most of what I know about pigs, I know from about age 19 down, because that's when I was around them the most, and that's been uh, 25 years ago. So, you know, I've been I've been away from them for a little while, but uh, I can get answers, uh, and I would have them now if I had more property here where I'm at. I would have them now, but I'm pretty limited on space, so uh, we don't have any. Um, what we do instead is uh, go in with people and buy raised hogs and um, uh, local farmers here that raise some uh, feeder pigs and we'll buy like a half hog at a couple times a year or once a year and get a lot of our meat that way. So 
that's how we're doing it now and that's a good way to do it um, but if you if you want to raise them yourself I hope that helps okay let's move on to our next question our next question comes from Scott and Scott asks I want to try to do a lot more planting in raised bed planters next year I would love to hear what you have to say about getting off to a good start what type of soil mixture uh, amendments to start off with uh, the depth of soil maintenance irrigation and drainage good question scott uh, i did a podcast oh i don't it's been a, been a while back on reasons you would want to have raised beds and and some of those things are, are mentioned in there i mean it is because you can pick your soil you can start off with good soil and uh have the right amount of soil depth and you go ahead and set it up for good drainage and such so uh there are some great benefits to raised beds but what how is it that you do put that soil in there i mean what do you mix up and there are some different schools of thought on that if you've ever read the book square foot gardening uh, by mel bartholomew he talks a lot about it and there's people who love that and there's a lot of people who disagree with his method mel bartholomew talks about a soil mix of um of three parts in that book and he says you're going to want to go with one-third coarse horticultural vermiculite one-third peat moss and one-third blended compost and uh like i said he he uh and he even suggests in the compost that you get that from five different sources so you got a, a mixed kind of a mixed bag of nutrients in that mix of compost so i think it works yeah, that's great. I've, I've never done that. I would do that. It's not that I'm opposed to that. Um, but then you get people on the complete flip side, like Howard Garrett disagrees with that. He says you don't want to use peat moss. Uh, because Not because it's necessarily bad, but because it has no value. But I think mostly the reason you would you would use the peat moss is because of the it gives it a good, um, your soil a good texture. It, gives, it makes it fluffy. It aerates the soil, you know, and he doesn't like using that. Um, and the vermiculite is, you know, for, for water absorption, absorption and things like that. Uh, and it also, it helps to aerate the soil. Howard Garrett would, would recommend that you would, uh, use a good local topsoil, use native topsoil, uh, topsoil that's right in your area. And then you would also mix that with uh, compost again, uh, compost that you have created and some dry molasses or, or other organic fertilizers. And he likes the lava sand and the green sand as well. And I think, and also he, he recommends the, the whole ground cornmeal. Mix a little bit of that in there as well. Now he has some different uh, measurement amounts. I will put a link to uh, an article he wrote on how what the different percentages or, or weights per 100 square feet he recommends of soil mix. But I don't do any of that. Uh, and I'm not saying it's not better. I think it probably is. I think either one of those me- methods are probably better than what I do. And I'll just tell you what I do, and I've had no trouble. Now, this is what I started out with. Now, I continue to add good amendments later, but each year, but this is how I start out. I get some good topsoil. I have a friend who has an excavating business. He's all the time got piles of really good topsoil laying around on his property. And I just take my uh, little old pickup truck over there, and he comes out with his loader, and he gives me a couple good scoops of real healthy-looking topsoil. And I bring that home, and I have a nice, big, hefty compost pile that's good and juicy, and and I just go 50-50. I take 50% topsoil, 50% compost, and I just mix it all together. Now, what I will do is after I get it all mixed together and I get it in the bed, I will 
take um, and sprinkle a little bit of dry molasses, just like a sprinkle a light layer, uh, not even inches thick, just just a, just a thin layer uh, all the way across that top of that bed of dried molasses. And I will do the same thing with uh, whole cornmeal. Now the dried molasses kind of gets the biological activity cooking in there a little bit and helps things get going. And the cornmeal actually feeds the beneficial bacteria that will help kill uh, harmful funguses like things like blight and such. So I, I do the same thing with both those, and I just take my hands and just kind of stir it in there, just kind of mix all that into the dirt. And that's all I add for the first year. Now, I will continue to add just a little bit of molasses and a little bit of uh, cornmeal and a lot of compost each year. And that's, my, that's what I do. Because it will settle and it, I don't know, it just washes out through the bottom a little bit, settles into the ground. And, and you'll honestly always be adding a little bit into it uh, for years. I mean, it just, mine does, it settles down. Matter of fact, you want to talk about soil depth uh, a little bit. I build 12-inch raised beds, uh, generally. 12 inches deep for the soil. Now, my beds are a lot taller than that, but they only hold about 12 inches of soil because I just raised the bottom up, the floor of it up. And I'll fill it pretty close to the top. And within a couple weeks, that'll settle down two, three inches. Because really, you want eight to ten inches, I think, of soil for your soil depth is really good. So if you make a 12-inch high bed and it settles down to even eight inches, it's going to be enough to plant pretty much anything you need to plant in it. And that gives you more room to add amendments and stuff uh, You know, each year that you're uh, kind of setting up your bed. Irrigation. Uh, there's standard irrigation setups out there. I don't use any irrigation on mine. I, but I don't have so much that I can't do it myself. I talked about this in the last podcast, I think. Um, I just go out there. When, when it's not raining enough, I just go out there with a hose and water my garden. You can do it from your rain catchment system. That way you're getting a good, healthy rainwater on it. And it's good. That's what I do. I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you other than, you know, they, they sell really easy-to-hook-up irrigation systems that work really well. I just don't find that I need it here. I'm in Indiana. We get a good amount of rain. We have a few dry spells where I might go out a couple times a week and water the garden. It just isn't, it isn't real bad for me. I don't know where you live. If you live somewhere where you're not getting a lot of rainfall, yeah, you got to do it. I mean, it's something you're going to have to hook up. It's not real expensive. It takes a little bit of work. But, yeah, it's just, you know, it's what you're going to have to do. I do recommend that it be like a drip irrigation system or a soaker hose. Something that's going to put the water right at the plants is, is best. That way you're not wasting water. Um, a drip irrigation system that has a little, um, the little nipples that squirt out right at the base of the plant where you can just line them right up at the plants. You, you insert those in the lines right at the, the plant bases are really, really good. So those are, that's how I would recommend doing that. If you build your, your bed properly, it should already have good drainage. Don't put like a plastic liner in it that holds water. You don't want that. I, I actually seen, a, I mentioned that because I actually seen a person do that. They built a nice wooden box and they just took plastic and lined it and it didn't even put any holes in it and then they wondered why water was running over the top of their bed on a heavy rain <laughs> don't do that uh you're not making a uh, you're not making a pool you're making a, a planter box i don't think you would do that but i mention it because well there are people who do things like that right um so yeah i do line however I do line it with, um, I've used landscape fabric, but generally what I do is, here's the whole reason I do this. I take the landscape fabric and I line the edges of the bed, the wood part. And the reason I do that is I have found 
that when the soil is right up against the wood and insects and worms and such can get right up against the wood, it's going to rot that wood a lot faster. Just a, 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 a barrier like landscape fabric attached right to the wood helps that wood last so much longer. Uh, it's been my experience. I used, I've used pallets uh, to build some raised beds, uh, you know, some that were not chemically treated and put the fabric on there. And that's a thin wood that usually rots pretty quick. And I've been using those beds for three years and they show no signs yet of any kind of rot. So, you know, I think putting up some, you know, I'm, I don't see anybody talking about that, but when you put that soil right up against that wood, it does rot it out faster. And what I do is before I start putting any soil in, I put uh, two or three thick layers of cardboard right on the, the ground at the bottom of the bed, just as a weed barrier. I make a pretty good, probably a good half inch thick cardboard barrier at the bottom. Now water will go through that. So you don't have to worry about it holding water, but it just, it creates a nice weed barrier and, and things like that. So then just put your soil on top of that. That's what I do. Now, I also would either grow cover crops on the top around your, uh, whatever you're planting, or I would use mulch, um, on the top. Now don't mix your mulch in, don't push it down into the, or like rototill it or, or work it down inside the soil. You don't want that. You want it on the top of the soil. So even if you're going to add something later, rake that mulch up off of there, put your amendments down, and then put more mulch on top of that. Or most people just use compost. They'll just continue to add compost each year as an amendment, and that will keep weed pressure down as well. Put a heavy, thick layer of, uh, of compost on each year. Um, that's a really about all I can tell you. Uh, you like I said, you can continue. I Oh, something else I do, I do add the... Uh, uh, a little bit of a, each year, I add a little bit more of the cornmeal just because I try to keep the um, the blight fungus under control. I used to have a real bad problem with that around here until I started using the cornmeal, the whole cornmeal, sprinkling that on, working that into the soil each year, and uh, that, like I said, it feeds the beneficial microbes that will actually um, destroy that fungus. So you want to use you want to use that cornmeal if you have a problem with with blight um, especially. So I hope that helps you, Scott. If you have other questions about that, I'd love to hear back from you. Uh, Let me know if that answered your questions or not. Um, Another question we have is from Jamie. Jamie asks, a couple episodes ago, you gave a definition of modern homesteading that made a lot of sense to me. Could you say a little bit more about what makes a person a homesteader? I don't have a lot of land. I grow a garden and do some food preservation, but I'm not sure I would call myself a homesteader. I love this question. I love this question. Let's talk a little bit about it. I have a I have a bit of a definition as to what I think makes up a homesteader. Some people agree with it, some people don't. But I think there's these characteristics that make up a homesteader. It's not so much about your your land or what you're doing. It's it's a characteristic about you that makes you a homesteader. And uh, I've I've kind of thought about this a little bit and i've come up with five characteristics of a modern homesteader and uh you can tell me if you agree with these or not but number one i think a homesteader holds to a philosophy and this may it may seem like a strange identifying characteristic of a homesteader but i think this is an important one i think to be a homesteader you got to first think like a homesteader you got to believe in the importance of freedom and self-sufficiency you have to believe you have the ability to provide for yourself 
and not be dependent on others to provide for you. I think that's important. Now, I don't think that that philosophy rules out the idea of receiving help as a, in a community, but rather it operates as a resource in the community. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that one in a minute. Uh, a homesteader believes in themselves. They believe in their ability. They believe in the land. They believe in its provision. They believe in the design of nature to give of its resources. They believe in using what they have as an asset and a giver rather than a liability and a taker. In short, I think, I think a, a homesteader is an optimistic thinker who strives to figure out a way. I think that's a number one characteristic of a homesteader. Number two, I think a homesteader is a learner. Every homesteader I know is constantly trying to learn something new. They want to learn another way to preserve their food. They want to know how to make a richer, more nutrient-based compost. They want to learn a new skill. They want to learn a new recipe, a new way to build something. Homesteaders have a desire to learn. Everyone I've ever met does. And, you know, when we think of education these days, we often have images in our mind of someone working their way through college or flipping their way through overpriced textbooks, preparing for a specific career. And I believe there's a place for that. There, there's a time and a place for that kind of learning. But that's not what I'm talking about when I say they're a learner. What I'm talking about is this might be a person who spends time with their grandparents, letting them pass on their wisdom of a better way from another time. Or it might be about building relationships with those who are doing something that they want to do and then letting that person be a mentor to them. And you know what? There are times when you crack open a book or you use the Internet to learn something new or better. And we live in a time where there's just endless resources right there at our fingertips, right? There's no excuse for being uneducated in whatever you desire to learn. And I believe the homesteader has that desire. So I think you have a philosophy of a homesteader, and I think a homesteader is a learner. I think a third characteristic of a homesteader, and I think this is an important one, a homesteader is not just a thinker, but a doer. You can think about all the things you want to do all the time. I did it for years. But you know what? I never became a homesteader until I started doing those things. Words without action is nothing. Thoughts without action, it's not good enough. You can know a lot about how to plant a garden. You can know a lot about how to preserve your food. You can know a lot about how to take care of livestock or how to care for bees, etc. But if we never actually do anything with that knowledge, what good is it? Other than maybe teaching others, but you teach best with your experiences, right? Homesteaders are people of action. They are doers. They're not just thinkers. They plant that garden. Even if it's just they put it in pots and plant it in their windows, put it in a window seal, they plant a garden. They preserve that food. Even if that means they have to go down to the farmer's market and buy some vegetables and blanch and freeze them, right? Because they don't have enough space to grow a garden. Uh, they work towards financial freedom by paying off their bills and living within their means so as not to be in bondage to a system, right? They don't just think about it, and they don't just talk about it. They get out there and they do it. They do something. They work towards something. So a homesteader is not just a thinker. They're a doer. And I believe a homesteader is also one who's going to give back. It's one of the biggest differences, I think, between a homesteader and the average person is their attitude towards not just taking, but giving back. When we take from the soil, we give back to the soil, don't we? 
I mean, we grow things out of the soil, but yet we, just like I talked a bit, about a minute ago with the uh, raised beds, we add amendments each year. We're adding something back to the soil, more nutrients, more compost. We're giving back. We're not just taking. We, we, we take from the soil. We're thinking about long-term benefits, aren't we? Not just instant gratification. We're thinking about planting another crop next year. You know, and the thought process of many uh, what I would consider big ag farmers is not that. They just take, 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 and then they want to put back this temporary uh, stuff that isn't going to have long, long-term benefits to the, to the world. But that's not what the homesteader thinks like. That's why we like organic methods. Uh, we want our children and our grandchildren and generations beyond that to be able to benefit from the land, right? When you see a 70-year-old homesteader planting a tree, think about this. They're probably not planting that tree for themselves. They're planting that tree for the next generation. When you're out talking to your neighbors about how to plant a tomato or where they should put an apple tree on our property, this isn't for you, it's for them. This is the mindset of the homesteaders I know. They want the world to be a better place. They want other families to eat healthy and live a rewarding life. They want to see children grow up and hold on to the wholesome traditions of the past. They want others to embrace the joy and freedoms they are experiencing. That's because homesteaders are givers. And you know what? The fifth and final characteristic I believe are about homesteaders is homesteaders are part of a community. And sometimes people are confused by the phrase self-sufficiency. They think this means doing it alone. But what it really means is using one's resources to meet their own needs. This doesn't rule out community as one of your resources. You really can't grow raise, build, and repair everything you need all by yourself. You just can't do it. Community is important for the homesteader. It's an important part of our growth. It's important for our progress. We learn how to do new things through community. We receive help and encouragement through community. And this often gives us the strength to take the next step or start something new. There's a saying that says, fear hates community. And you know what? Sometimes jumping into a new venture can be a little overwhelming, right? Taking on something new on the homestead. But with community, we can find the courage to go for it. Homesteaders flock together, not just because we want to, but because we need to if we're going to become more self-sufficient than we were yesterday. That's what I believe a homesteader is. Jamie, I don't know if you can call yourself a homesteader or not. I I think probably so. I think probably so. You identify these characteristics in you? Do you hold to a philosophy of the homesteader, of self-sufficiency and freedom? Are you a learner? Do you desire to know more? Your email tells me you do. You wanted an answer. Are you not just a thinker but a doer, somebody who takes action? Well, you're growing a garden and you're preserving some food. Do you want to give back to the earth? Do you want to give to future generations? Do you want the world to be a better place? Do you want to be part of a community of other homesteaders? that are helping and inspiring one another? If those are characteristics that are in you, I don't care how much land you have. I don't care how much livestock you're raising or how big of a garden you're growing. I think you're a homesteader. And we need a bunch more of them. A bunch more. If we want to see the world be a better place, I really truly believe the homesteading mentality needs to be spread throughout this world. Are you a homesteader? I don't know. You're going to have to answer that for yourself. But I believe if you have these characteristics 
If you can look inside yourself and say, hey, that's me. I have those five characteristics. You should call yourself a homesteader. Not because of where you're living, not because of what you're growing, but because of who you are, what you believe, and what you do. Speaking of community, if you want to be part of a great and growing homesteading community, run on over and join our Homestead Front Porch. That's where these questions came from this week. Uh, It's our Facebook group, and uh, there are over 600 people in there now. It's growing every day. People are joining, and people are communicating with one another, helping one another, answering questions, asking questions. I'm loving this group. I'm loving it. And uh, I'm learning. I'm, I'm helping people learn. Other people are helping people learn and learning. Be part of it. Uh, just search in Facebook for uh, Homestead Front Porch and uh, ask to join. It's a closed group, but all you have to do to join is ask, and we will get you signed up. Something new I want to tell you about this week. Um, you now have the opportunity to support the Modern Homesteading Podcast. I've always been a little bit funny about asking people for help. And I'm not asking because I have to have the help. I'm just asking because we can do so much more with the help. If you enjoy this podcast and you enjoy what we're doing over at smalltownhomestead.com, we signed up with a Patreon account. If you've never heard of Patreon, uh, Patreon is a, is a, a website that allows folks to be patrons or give us support uh, for what we're doing. There is some bonuses to it. You can support for a dollar. You're just helping to support. You can give as little as a dollar of it, as little as a dollar, and we are so thankful for that because every dollar makes a difference. There are expenses to this. Um, there are several hundred dollars a year that are paid out in uh, media hosting and uh, uh, website hosting and things like that. Uh, other uh, software we're using to do this podcast and to do uh, our website, and it's nice when you can have some help. And if you give at least a dollar, uh, it, it, it really helps us. And, but if you help on a $5 or more level, there are actually going to be, starting next month in October, there are going to be two extra podcasts per month for folks who want to give on that level. And some other benefits. There will be some uh, homesteading PDF documents packed full of homesteading information uh, that I will occasionally put out in that group for, for patrons only. And uh, just a little extra. I don't have enough time to do a lot extra, but I can do a little extra if you want to help at $5 a month. There are some other levels as well. I won't get into all that. Uh, but check it out. If you go to smalltownhomestead.com, at the top of the page, there is a, in the menu bar at the top of the page, there is a support uh, button. Or in the show notes, at the bottom of the show notes in the podcast, there is a support uh, a place where you can click to go and support us on Patreon. And it's real easy. And you would really do a lot to help us uh, make these podcasts and pay for what we're doing here. I'm going to keep doing it. It's going to be a free podcast. I want to change the world. I want to. I want to be part of a community. I want to be a giver. And I think it's important. If you feel like it's important too, and you want to help, you can. And if you don't, that's fine too. I want you to be part of this community. You are no less part of this community if you don't help. You are not. I am so glad you're listening. We're going to be here for you. We're going to we're going to help you. But I appreciate those who can help. And uh, I did this as, on a request of somebody who said, "Hey, why why don't you have a way for us to to help uh, support you?" And uh, that person may be the only person that gives. I don't know. But I kind of set it up because they requested it. They wanted to be able to give something, so I made a way for them to be able to give something. And if you want to help too, you can as well. And I appreciate it. I really really do. And it's humbling for me when people do. It really is. Um, 
I feel like what we're doing is good. I feel like what we're doing is beneficial to some people. I don't feel like what I'm doing is the best stuff out there you can get. And it's why you'll often see me on the website. I don't know if, if some of you are regular readers of the website. I know some of you are. Um, you see, uh, when I start listening to a new homesteading podcast or I find a new homesteading blog, I'm not shy about sharing it. Because you know what? I don't regard any of those things as competition. We are in this together. You've heard my story. You know why I think it's important. And uh, it has nothing nothing to do about me it's got to do with making this world a better place and i just want to do my part and if you want to help me to play this part and be a part of this yourself there's a way now you can do that so head on over uh, to our website and click on that or you can just go to smalltownhomestead.com backslash support and it'll take you to our patreon page i appreciate it enough of that also you can head on over to our website and read a lot of articles um i'm actually going to be uh, I didn't put it in the show notes for today, especially with the uh, the question on raising pigs for the first time. But, uh, Ellie, I'll be posting a blog post with all that information on it uh, about probably middle of the week this week. I'm putting all this. I, I took a lot of notes when I was putting that one together for you, and I just compiled that into a blog post. But I won't, I'll be posting that probably about Wednesday for you to see. Um, so if you need to... Uh, see that just go to the website and go to the articles and there'll be a list of everything I talked about on that so um, hey anyway uh, glad you all joined me again this week Um, head on over to the front porch I mean it we really 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 want to see you there we thank you guys so much for listening and until next week happy homesteading God bless thanks for listening to see the show notes for this podcast or listen to other podcast episodes, go to smalltownhomestead.com. There you can also read our blog, connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, and take advantage of the many resources we make available to help you along in your homesteading journey. Please share this podcast and help us to carry out our mission of helping others to homestead today for a better tomorrow. Mm-hmm.